Hello, you're listening to the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. My name is Aiden Flax-Clark. I work at the library and share some of our cultural programming with you on this show. On today's episode, a conversation between Elizabeth Alexander and Atul Gawande. In the last couple of years, both have written beautiful books about death. Two very different books, but as you'll hear from their conversation, quite complementary in their differences. Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, posits that modern medicine, for all of its wonders at prolonging life and preventing or staving off disease, has yet to catch up in how it handles dying. That's his diagnosis, and then Gawande goes on to explore various prescriptions for how the final months, weeks, and days of our lives can be managed with more grace and, above all, more humanely. Elizabeth Alexander, who is a poet and the director of creativity and free expression at the Ford Foundation, wrote a book called The Light of the World, which is a memoir of her husband Fikre's sudden death and the time that followed grieving, caring for her children, and reconstructing her life. They're both remarkable books, and whichever of them you haven't yet read, I really encourage you to go check it out. The best thing about this conversation is how in admiration of each other Alexander and Gwande were, and how deeply touched they both were by each other's books. It really couldn't have been a better pairing, so let's not waste any more time than we have to to get to the conversation. Let me just tell you that if you enjoy this episode and haven't subscribed to the New York Public Library podcast yet, we'd love it if you went to Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen and subscribe now. And if you already are a subscriber, taking a moment to leave a nice review would really help us out, not to mention brighten our day. Okay. Here's Elizabeth Alexander and Atul Gawande. I'm so excited to get to talk to Elizabeth. What I told her ahead of time was, I get to use this excuse of an event like this to invite someone I've always wanted to meet, and, um, and the memoir is extraordinary, and to have a chance to compare notes from two different ends of mortality, I think is gonna be a, a great occasion. We both thought a good way to start, because some of you know her work and some of you know mine, would be that we'd both read a little bit. Yes. I'm excited, too. Yes, we're making friends right here and right now. That's right. (laughs) So um, I'll start, and then uh, Elizabeth will read something. I'm just going to read from the very beginning of Being Mortal. I learned about a lot of things in medical school, but mortality wasn't one of them. Although I was given a dry, leathery corpse to to dissect in my first term, that was solely a way to learn about human anatomy. Our textbooks had almost nothing on aging or frailty or dying, how the process unfolds, how people experience the end of their lives, and how it affects those around them seemed beside the point. The way we saw it, and the way our professors saw it, the purpose of medical schooling was to teach how to save lives, not how to tend to their demise. The one time I remember discussing mortality was during an hour we spent on the death of Ivan Illich, Tolstoy's classic novella. It was in a weekly seminar called Patient Doctor, part of the school's efforts to make us more rounded and humane physicians. Some weeks we would practice our physical examination etiquette, other weeks we'd learn about the effects of socioeconomics and race on health, and one afternoon we contemplated the suffering of Ivan Illich as he lay ill and worsening from some unnamed untreatable disease. In the story, Ivan Illich was 45 years old, a mid-level St. Petersburg magistrate whose life revolves mostly around petty concerns of social status. One day he falls off a stepladder and develops a pain in his side. Instead of abating, the pain gets worse, and he becomes unable to work. Formerly an intelligent, 
polished, lively, and agreeable man, unquote, he grows depressed and enfeebled. Friends and colleagues avoid him. His wife calls in a series of ever more expensive doctors. None of them can agree on a diagnosis, and the remedies they give him accomplish nothing. For Illich, it is all torture, and he simmers and rages at his situation. Quote, what tormented Ivan Illich most, Tolstoy writes, was the deception, the lie, which for some reason they all accepted, that he was not dying, but was simply ill, and he only needed to keep quiet and undergo a treatment, and then something very good would result. Ivan Illich has flashes of hope that maybe things will turn around, but as he grows weaker and more emaciated, he knows what's happening. He lives in mounting anguish and fear of death, but death is not a subject that his doctors, friends, or family can countenance, and that is what causes him the most profound pain. No one pitied him as he wished to be pitied, right? writes Tolstoy. At certain moments after prolonged suffering, he wished most of all, though he would have been ashamed to confess it, for someone to pity him as a child, as a sick child is pitied. He longed to be petted and comforted. He knew he was an important functionary, that he had a beard turning gray, and that therefore what he longed for was impossible. But still, he longed for it. As we medical students saw it, the failure of those around Ivan Illich to comfort or to acknowledge what is happening to him was a failure of character and of culture. The late 19th century Russia of Tolstoy's story seemed harsh and almost primitive to us, just as we believe that modern medicine could probably have cured Ivan Illich of whatever disease he had. So, so we too took it for granted that honesty and kindness were basic responsibilities of a modern doctor. We were confident that in such a situation, we would act compassionately. What worried us instead was knowledge. While we knew how to sympathize, we didn't, weren't at all certain we would know how to properly diagnose and treat. We paid our medical tuition to learn about the inner process of the body, the intricate mechanisms of its pathologies, and the vast trove of discoveries and technologies that have accumulated to stop them. We didn't imagine we needed to think about much else. So we put Ivan Illich out of our heads. Yet, within a few years, when I came to experience surgical training and practice, I encountered patients forced to confront the realities of decline and mortality, and it did not take long to realize how unready I was to help them. So I picked three little bits from the light of the world. Henry Ford believed the soul of a person is located in their last breath and so captured the last breath of his best friend Thomas Edison in a test tube and kept it evermore. It is on display at the Henry Ford Museum outside Detroit like Galileo's finger in the church of Santa Croce, but Edison's last breath is an invisible relic. Ficre breathed his last breath into me when I opened his mouth and breathed everything I had into him. He felt like a living person then. I am certain his soul was there. And then, in the ambulance, riding the long ride down to the hospital, even as they worked and worked, the first icy wind blew into me. He was going or gone. I need to call somebody, don't I? I asked the ambulance driver, a woman. Yes, you do, she said. 
Black men die more catastrophically across class than anybody else in America. Toni Morrison, not a house in the country ain't packed to its rafters with some dead Negro's grief. He was an African man, an Eritrean man, and an African-American man. He was a black man. He was not the descendant of slaves. He literally walked across his country through killing fields to escape when he was 16 years old. He walked into the dust of Khartoum. He was a refugee in Sudan, in Italy, in Germany, and in the United States, where he would end up living in New Haven, Connecticut, for far longer than anywhere he had ever lived before. He washed dishes in Italy, attended school before he knew a word of the language in a Germany so racially hostile it almost broke him. He went years without seeing his parents. His parents and his community built him to survive, but it was not without price. His big heart burst. The autopsy later tells us his arteries were blocked nearly completely, despite the fact that he was slim and energetic and ate yogurt and blueberries and flaxseed, despite the fact that he passed stress tests with flying, flying colors. He was probably dead before he hit the ground, the emergency room doctor and the coroner and a cardiologist I later speak with tell me that is why there was no blood on the floor, despite his head wound and the scalp's vascularity. He might have felt strange, the doctors told me, before what they call the cardiac event, but not for more than a flash. One tells me he is certain Fikre saw my face as he died. We are meant to take comfort in this knowledge, if knowledge it is. I lost my husband. Where is he, I often wonder. As I set out on some small adventure, some new place, somewhere he does not know, I think I must call him, think I must tell him, think what would he think, think what he thinks, know what he thinks. When I held him in the basement, he was himself, Fikre. When I held him in the hospital as they worked and cut off his clothes, he was himself. When they cleaned his body and brought his body for us to say goodbye, he had left his body, though it still belonged to us. His body was colder than it had been, though not ice cold nor stiff and hard. His spirit had clearly left as it had not left when we found him on the basement floor, and I knew that he could hear us. Now I know for sure the soul is an evanescent thing, and the body is its temporary container, because I saw it. I saw the body with the soul in it, I saw the body with the soul leaving, and I saw the body with the soul gone. And then to conclude, what does it mean to grieve in the absence of religious culture? I am formally Episcopalian on both sides, an Afro-Saxon, but was not raised going to church, though I spent much of my life until going to college studying ballet at a studio in St. Mark's Church performing with the company in services. Art is my religion. I believe in the chosen family. I believe in some kind of encompassing black culture that I am part of, syncretic, to use the word Fikre liked. But I am also aware of the romance behind that sense of belonging. I am feeling very Jewish, I keep hearing in my head, thinking not of my actual Jewish Jamaican great-grandfather, but rather about a wish for a religious culture that reveres the word and tells you what to do. Rosh Hashanah, days of awe, invite the dead to Sukkot. There seems to be a poetic ritual for everything. I am not a black Baptist who will fall out in her grief and be lifted by the hands of her fellow parishioners. I am not an Eritrean woman who goes through the house keening, fikre hawe, fikre hawe, which means fikre, where are you? But I want rules. 
I want the prayers to say every day for a year at dusk, and I want them to be beautiful and meaningful. I want to sit Shiva and have the neighbors come at the end of the week and walk my family along the block to usher us into the sunlight. Where is the village? Um. So, we have questions for each other. Where do we start? Um, um, I have so many questions for your book, which I love so very much. It is a beautiful and powerful book, and it left me um, asking so many questions, and one of them was, I wanted to ask you, what is a, what is a good death? Um, what, is, what, what do you think is a good death? In a way, I end up battling with that question because I, I think the goal, part of the, you know, when I wrote the book, it was 2014 when it came out, and we were still in the throes of the death panels conversation. And the idea that even to have the discussion with people about what their life at the end of life should be like um, was, you know, a political hand grenade just by itself. Um, and what I wanted to what I, what I found along the way and then I wanted to happen was that we recognized that this wasn't a discussion about um, having a good death, that this is a conversation about having a good life all the way to the very end. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that, our, that this isn't about sort of, do you fight or do you give up? Do you accept um, all of those things? I think it's a path that everybody takes quite differently and in a sense, a good story about dying, what I, I ended up interviewing 200 people about their experiences with terminal illness or advancing frailty or their family members who had. And the thing that I slowly recognized was that they were talking about um, that in the process of talking about dying and even talking about a good death, they were really talking about living and the fact that people got to live all the way to the very end. And it's recognizing the idea that even someone who was laid out in bed maybe in pain, maybe incontinent, maybe struggling in various ways, m likely has things that um, makes life worth living for them, but they still have things they can look forward to until they don't. Um, and so, under th and that we can't understand that unless we talk. Mm -hmm. And there's something about that connection around uh, that, that we can't achieve a good life um, all the way to the very end, which in a sense is what to me becomes the good death. Um, unless we understand, we're willing to ask what people's priorities are besides just surviving. Mm -hmm. What matters to them? And then things that matter to them emerge like legacy, what they leave behind, the chance to say goodbye or I'm sorry or connect in various ways to um, that people have something they live for that is larger than themselves and that um, they need to have uh, uh, be connected to, and that this matters even long before they die, and that we mm -hmm. have to ask those questions. Mm -hmm. When we don't ask those questions, we don't know their priorities. We therefore are doing things often to them that are not what matter to them most, and that's when we get suffering. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's the suffering I encounter over and over again, and that in some way um, was recognized by Tolstoy going back to Ivan Illich. Does that make sense? Total sense, total sense. And, you know, I was thinking also about, um, and, and, and I, don't, 
I, I, I read the book as a first-generation American book mm. because um, it raised for me also the question of is there such a thing, is a good death an old world death? You know, your grandfather, who lives to 110, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, my own grandfather, Jamaican grandfather, lived to 93, said, you know, the minute they put me in the hospital is, the day, is when I'll die. He went in the hospital. We had a week's notice where we all went to his bedside, and then he just died, and then he was dead. And so, I mean, I think that there, I always felt that there was something old world about that, which is part romance, but I also think dying in context, how you die is something that you're talking about a lot through a very interesting um, uh, um, cross-country uh, lens. So I wonder if you could talk about that some more. Yeah, we, I, you know, I, I got to write about the death of my grandfather, and, um, and it was this beautiful thing. You know, he, uh, he was failing for 20 years, <laughs> and he, um, uh, you know, was a man who had was starving at age 18, was born into indenture. His dad died and he's 18 years old. And, and, you know, he has one cow and two uh, acres of land and he owes debt. And if he doesn't pay it off that year, you know, so he's lived for a year on like salt and bread and making it through and ultimately had 200 acres. And, and for him, walk, he'd walked those acres every day of his life. And then when they got large enough, he went around on a horse. And so, he still wanted to go around on the horse at 108 years old. And, uh, and so the family got him a smaller horse. <laughs> and, and that was the beautiful thing. He still was the head of the family dinner table. People still came to him for advice on marriages and on businesses and, and, and major decisions. They wanted him to bless uh, the decisions. Um, but then, and, and if he had been in the United States, here's a man who... You know, he needed help being fed. He needed help being bathed. He needed help going to the bathroom. He would have been in a nursing home here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the flip side, the reason I'm not nostalgic about it mm -hmm. is um, it worked because it enslaved young people, especially mm -hmm. young women. Mm -hmm. There were, you know, first it was the daughters and especially the daughters-in-law, mm -hmm. and then it would be the grandchildren-in-law, and uh, that would be the ones who were caring for him and, and yeah. kind of waiting. You know, that multi-generational family was really that kind of story. And when India uh, progressed beyond the agricultural economy and my cousins had a future that was available to them, mm -hmm. India grew because they got freedom. They got to go to yes. the city. The, the extended family broke apart. And in India now, 70 to 80% of the deaths um, in the cities or in hospitals, and it looks, you know, mm. just like the kind of, you know, institutionalized thing that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and it's coming to understand how we get to come out the other end. It, it isn't an East, Eastern versus Western death. In many ways, you go back to the 19th, 18th century mm -hmm. when we were an agricultural economy mm -hmm. of extended families where the average person had seven children and died at the age of 45. Mm -hmm. um, that was also the world we experienced. Mm -hmm. And the modernized world is smaller families, more fragmented, more distributed. And now we turn to medicine saying, well, you guys take care of this mm -hmm. and you'll fix it, right? Yeah. And then we and then we kind of make it worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the story of your father, your your beautiful father, who I feel I know from from the book. 
Um, one thing that I thought was so interesting is how you slow down time in the telling of that story. Hmm. Toward, yeah, it takes a long time, you know, his um, going through his illness and his, and you observe very, very carefully and you really, really bear witness to every aspect of it in a particular detail that I thought was fascinating. Um, but also, I, I think about, you know, this man who comes, you know, to Athens, Ohio and, and leaves certain things behind, but then that beautiful scene where, you know, you take his ashes to the Ganges. Yeah. Because that's how, that's the ritual, you know. And so the reason that I read that part about, you know, what does it mean to kind of create a culture when you belong to something, um, uh, but it changes in the American context, um, and religion alone doesn't do it. Um, so, I mean, that's just sort of an observation, but... Well, I want to connect it to two things, and um, one is another way in which old deaths are different from the kind of modern and the American death, which is how time unfolds. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and then that leads me to ask, want to ask you a little bit about the difference in how time unfolded in both of our stories. Mm -hmm. So my father's brain tumor um, was something that was this slow-growing tumor and part of the story of modern life is that we could know about it yeah. in advance uh, and see it as see it, it unfolds. That's you such know, a scene the, when you the, see the it. The history yeah. of old death, um, one person explained to me very beautifully, they said, you know, the pattern of death for most of history was that illness came like bad weather and either you got through it or not. Yeah. It would be, you know, the, the, the long, elongated dying process mm -hmm. is the modern phenomena of both being able to detect disease earlier than you would otherwise and then being able to act in ways that that you know can have you still breathing and have you still eating through various mm -hmm. devices and all of those things mm -hmm. so you know my father had to make choices at every step along that way we learned about the brain tumor it had just been a twinge in his neck and then you see on this ct scan this giant thing in his brain stem and in his spinal cord and then the question's right from then, so should we do something about it? What should mm -hmm. we do? Mm -hmm. And what I'd learned to ask from my patients and being in the process of writing, because I'd started writing before we even had that diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, and what I learned was to ask him, well, what are your priorities besides just surviving this? It was clear mm -hmm. this couldn't be removed. You mm -hmm. can't remove your brainstem. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and... Uh, what are you willing to go through and not willing to go through? What are you willing to sacrifice for the mm -hmm. sake of more time? And what are you not willing to sacrifice? And one thing that was very clear was, for him, being a surgeon was his life. He mm -hmm. couldn't imagine life without it. And so his priority was not to do anything that would take that away from him. Mm -hmm. And so we opted for just observation for a long time because any of the procedures that would try to take parts of it, that tumor out mm -hmm. would likely paralyze his hand and that would be done. Mm -hmm. And so we, we could walk through all that process and make decisions about now do we do a, an operation, now do we do radiation, now do we do chemotherapy. You, on the other hand, had no chance mm -hmm. to have that run up. And I had uh, one section. Can I read one section sure, from your yeah. book <laughs> that I really wanted to ask you about? I wrote down the page number here. Um, because I, had a, I, I read it differently or I came to a different conclusion mm -hmm. um, because I felt really lucky yeah. that we had that long pathway. Mm -hmm. But you write, um, uh, his last night on earth, I was out of the house showing films to my students for class. Who could have known 
But still, I look back and wish I had known and that we could have stayed up all, to, all night together, entwined, saying every single thing to each other and weeping. Like a man waiting for his execution, I think. A maudlin thought, but my fervent, despairing current wish is that we had every single moment that I could have braved the countdown with him, that we could have walked the, the gangplank together. But where would the children have been during this anguished operatic exit? I could never allow that particular howling agony to touch them. For them, I preferred no clue, no lead up, no mortal dread. And now I've had so many patients where we've taken them to the operating room, said, let's go do this last ditch heroic thing. You know, let's not talk about the terrible thing that might happen. Let's do the hopeful thing. And then they didn't wake up. Yeah. And they spent the next two weeks in the ICU, and they never got to say goodbye, and they never got to say I love you. And to me, I was, felt the book was a little haunted hmm. by that, that inability to have said goodbye. It was your way of saying goodbye. And you have a beautiful way of describing him as um, uh, he, had, uh, he, he had drunk his water, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. meaning he had, filled, he had had his... He, he had had... A, you had a sense of life's completion and you found mm-hmm. ways. There was more he could have added, more he could have done, but there was a sense of completion. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that haunting? Do you, I, I'm grateful that I had that moment being entwined and yeah. connected with my father in that way. And we're going through that however long it takes with my mom. Mm-hmm. Um, now. But you, but, but, but you were grateful for, the the speed well you know it's funny because since he was he was 50 so um and it was a surprise yeah so um i i i have this kind of dark uh sense of comparison you know you hear stories of people suffering for a long time and then they're still dead and so i mean really honestly i mean i feel like well you know, my children, you know, we, we weren't wrung out with, with suffering. I mean, you, you know, it's, it's gallows humor, but, or not even humor, it's, you know, gallows analysis, I suppose. <laughs> um, but um, I think there was, long deaths are so hard on children and families um, where we were lucky, you might say, but also where it was how we lived, which is why the occasion of the book is the sudden loss of someone, but it quickly becomes a love story, and a love story not just about a man and a woman, but a love story about a family, a love story about chosen family, um, a love story about community, a love story about living, the love of living with art, and of having, you know, music and poetry and, and art as a way to move through extreme grief. Um, so I, I feel that given that, 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 that we were all was well, you know, I mean, I don't know, even if something as small as an argument instead of, you know, go listen to the sacred poetry, you know, that the last word someone says to you is, I'll take the kids, go listen to the sacred poetry of the Kabbalah in the afternoon, and I love you, and ciao, ciao, you know, and that all was well. The family was at peace. You know, he, he was very intimate with his children. He had a sleepover with his son the night before. Yeah. So, I mean, when I, when I look now, five years later, at what the, the measure of things, when I look at um, what my children have, you know, they have something that is complete, even though they have had tremendous loss. 
There's no so. question. The story is above all a love story, and it's this amazing story of your marriage. It was hard to read it and not feel like I am such an awful husband. <laughs> like Fikre, <laughs> man, oh man, like he would make this food and then he would wait for so you good. on the stoop. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I'm like, oh God, do I suck. But <laughs> well, and I feel like, oh my God, I'm not a surgeon too. Uh, so uh, you can write books and you can perform surgery. So we're even. I, I think being a better husband would be, would, would, be, would be a trump on that. And I think that's a beautiful thing. But then the amazing thing to me was also, which was another thing I want to ask you about, um, are your kids, they're sort of amazing. <laughs> and there was another part I wanted to read mm -hmm. and ask you about to, uh, that seemed emblematic of something going on that I didn't completely understand and mm -hmm. how you pulled it off. And it's um, describing uh, that um, you're talking about the phrase, you know, nobody cried today. And you talk oh, about a day yeah. that Simon, who had found Simon, Simon yeah. who had found his mm -hmm. father, was the one to find him. Um, he'd, he'd been exercising on exercise bike and then he was down on the ground with a big scalp wound. Um, and, uh, and he was 11 at the time. They were 11 and 12. So, yeah. yeah. And, 12, um, 11 and, and let's see, you found him crying and you say the next day Simon weeps remembering the day his father died, remembering finding him, being the first to find him, wondering if dying hurt him, remembering that the last thing his father said to him before he went downstairs to the treadmill was a cheerful, check on me. You did check, I tell him. And then I came, and then brother, and we were there with him when his soul left the room. He was in his own home, and he was with us. And it just makes me cry just even telling this, like, you know, then he says, and, and it's what happens after that's even more beautiful. Mm -hmm. The tears subside and melt into a few strong shudders. A bit later from the shower, Simon calls out to me. I was a 10 in sadness when I was crying, mommy, but now I'm a six. Mm. Whoops, he said. It just went down to a five. <laughs> he comes out of the shower and puts on his pajamas. Now it's just a three. He brushes his teeth. Now it's all gone, he says. We were with daddy when he died. How did you do that? Oh, well, I mean, who is Simon, right? I mean, who is Solomon? Who, I mean, who are these Did he just do that himself? That you were... didn't teach him to think that way? He, he, he came as he is. <laughs> uh, he came as he is. And uh, so he do, we're, 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 we just both emptied our nests a week ago. We did. So that's the boy who um, is the now... The last of mine was a freshman in college yeah, and the last of yours is. Yeah, is now in, in college. Um, you know, um, what I realized, so I, I wrote this book starting, I see my, 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 my mothers here, Gretchen Young and Faith Childs, who uh, who are, are the mothers of this book, you know, and um, it was really just a month after he passed away that I was scribbling things and not imagining that I was going to write a book and and then thinking even that it was that, that I was literally I mean I've talked about this it was writing was how I knew I was alive. I, I took care of my kids. I got up every morning and I took care of them. But the way that I knew, I, the way that I had consciousness of what was happening to us was by writing, but not by like writing a book. And so um, it was Faith and Gretchen who, you know, very gently, very soon after said, you know, do you think, what do you think, you're, you know, maybe you 
have something, maybe you're doing something um, in the most tender way. Um, and so I think that for some reason that I do not know why, I was able to bear witness. So what I did was, in the same very, very careful way that you describe, I described very, very carefully exactly what happened. Exactly. From memory, because it was almost well, a from, year from, afterwards, right? Well, no, well, I started writing, the, the book came out, oh, I started writing right afterwards. You did? Yeah, so I wrote through, I wrote this, and then it was done. And not with a new habit, was it just fitting it into your usual habit, or did you, it, was it wasn't, actually a new thing? It was like primal, it was just writing some things, you know, yeah. to like be, and that even like feet on the ground, hand on the table, or I would like lie, you know, I would lie on the ground and say, the ground will hold me. So that's true, you know, and then I would write and that was like, that was living. You know, I never understood. I have a, a friend who's a beautiful, beautiful singer and she said, I never knew why I sang until I sang at my mother's funeral. That's, what's, that's what song is for, you know, to express something of that enormity if that is the, the, the gift that you nurture and practice. So, you know, I, I, I just feel like these amazing creatures, you know, these amazing young people who are amazing older young people now, um, were um, just, I, I just bore witness to them and took wow. care of them. Um, and, and that's happy. And they took care of you, clearly. Well, they, they did take <laughs> care of me. Yeah, they, they, did, they do take care of me. They're my sentries. I'm sentryless now. Just out here. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they're extraordinary people. And I think one thing that also has been very interesting, because when I hear you read that, um, I think, oh, he was a baby. You know, he's six foot five now. He's a man, you know, um, or a young man. And I think also that is what is interesting in a family about losing someone is that you go through the experience in time together. But you don't always know what a, what, a, what a husband means is different from what a father means. You know, the proportion of their life that we each had him and then won't have him is different. Um, so it's very, very interesting now that they're young adults um, seeing how the same uh, uh, occurrence in our family um, is and isn't um, overlapping for us. I have two thoughts about your comment about, you know, thinking about the children and what would have happened if it had been a longer process. Two thoughts. Number one is um, that that is the fact of the process now for most people. You know, we get to, we, we've reached a point where if survival in 1900 on average was 45 years, mm -hmm. we've added 35 plus years to that now in this century, which is an extraordinary transformation. Yeah. And that that pathway, instead of it being like, you live, you live, you live, you die. Um, it's you live, you get sick, you, you know, we can make you better, but not quite better. And then you go along a while and then you, again, you get sick and then we can make you better. And you, and you, and you wonder when, which is the one where we can't make you better along the way. And it has layers of uncertainty and layers of loss accumulating over time. Mm -hmm. But that the, the hopefulness to me, I ended up devoting a whole chapter to a woman named Laura Carstensen, who's yes. a psychologist, who discovered that as you follow people through this pathway, they do lose health, they do lose function, um, but that their sense of fulfillment actually increases over time. That you are more likely in older age um, to uh, experience 
love, for example, to have love in your life, that you're more likely, uh, you're, you become less focused on acquisition, having the right social status, the right um, house, the, the, the car, the trappings, um, and, and trying to have a wider and wider circle. You become a narrower circle um, and you focus on deeper, more intimate, more meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. And that those, that sense of um, the arc of the story having a beginning, a middle, and end, mm -hmm. and having the legacies you can pass on and purposes that you can articulate and voice um, are a meaningful part of the process that in, in many ways we do not serve mm -hmm. and that the, 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 the suffering comes from treating people as purely bodies in search of survival mm -hmm. rather than mm. people who create meaning. Yeah. And... Um, and the traps we create in hospitals, in nursing homes, is a kind of awful pathway mm -hmm. that, um, that I think we appropriately fear, but that that is not an inevitable pathway, that, that, mm -hmm. that, that we can make place. My mother turned 80 at the end of the book, you know, is my father's death. Now it's five years since he died, and she's been rattling around the same home. And we're having these conversations now. Mm -hmm. What are you willing to go through what are your fears for the future? She had a car wreck. We had to have a discussion about the keys. And, uh, and then, you know, some financial papers didn't get filed. And, um, and yet she's, you know, her fear is people taking away her control. Uh, and I got her to visit some of the older, um, the senior retirement communities in the book where they don't treat you as if you're in a prison where the only goal is keep you safe. Uh, you know, you can't have a drink, you can't, uh, mm -hmm. you can't wear high heels, you can't, mm -hmm. um, you know, wear the, brought her to places where they recognize you can make choices. And in fact, part of being alive is getting to make choices, mm -hmm. uh, express what your joys are, do the things you want to do. Mm -hmm. And so even though she's had falls and she's broken her wrist and she's uh, lost vision for a couple months when her retina detached, she still, and needs a wheelchair in airport, she still spent a month on a trip to India, and they helped mm -hmm. her figure out how they can make that possible. Mm -hmm. They, they, um, uh, they. You know, she became friends with a woman who'd been a scientist, and they, in her 80s, they still figured out a way to arrange for her to get transportation to go to her lab meeting every week, so she mm -hmm. could still participate and connect. And you know, my mother taught everybody how to, since she didn't have her car anymore, we talked her out of it, mm. how to order Uber and Lyft. Uh -huh. <laughs> And, you know, that is her freedom. Like, where do you go in your Uber lift? Why do I have to tell you? And, <laughs> and that sense of, you know, we're on this long pathway and she's having these um, losses. Yeah. And yet it's a kind of beautiful thing. She's, she, you know, she's in a place where you can also take classes in the local college. And she just, she's a pediatrician, so she took a class on the history of the child and now has just mm -hmm. done another class on the history of colonial literature. And, you know, I don't think she wrote a paper since she was 21. Mm -hmm. And even then, I'm not sure she was really the one writing the papers. <laughs> and she's really, you know, now having to do these things. And it's, a, it's like this beautiful thing. Um, and my kids are going through it with her mm -hmm. and they see it as part of the pathway. Yeah. Um, and I kind of feel really lucky that they're sharing that experience. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to see people age and die growing up in Ohio. My grandparents weren't there. People in the neighborhood, all they would do is they would just get old and suddenly disappear. Yeah. And 
I'd learned later they'd gone to a nursing home or they went to the hospital and never came back. Yeah. But but it was like we missed that being part of life. Yes. Do you think that's yeah, that's it's, it, I'm, my my parents live in my same building, and so and they moved, you know, from Washington D.C. They they said that they were coming to help me with the kids, and then my dad said, "Well, you know, actually, we're coming because we want to be with you, and we want to be with the kids, and you'll take care of us." And so <laughs> there it is. Um, but you know, but I think that I feel so what what my, for my children, um, uh, yeah. and just understanding. But I, I listened to you talk, and when I. I was reading your book, I thought, these people have a lot of clarity. I mean, to be able to have these conversations and your father's clarity and, and awareness, I mean, it, it, it seemed quite unusual um, to me. And, and, and so such a, there were a few moments where I, I felt grief. One was when your father's um, uh, emails got garbled you know, mm. where, where, the, where the, the letters are all gar And then um, there's that wonderful rhapsody of food toward the end of his life, and then he, he realizes that that is prolonging, you know, um, what he needs to go through, which is die. Um, so um, I just feel like there's so much self-awareness in the way that you communicate with your parents. I felt like, though, the thing that happened is we created that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, it was a struggle to have the discussion. Um, on my science side, I, I now, you know, along the process of doing the book, um, we ended up doing a study of this um, with cancer patients at the Dana-Farber, and now it's spread to other places, where we teach doctors to have this conversation. Mm -hmm. um, it's a two-and-a-half-hour training, and it's getting them, getting us to recognize that the goal isn't to, um, the usual way you, you think of yourself as a clinician is, I'm here to provide the facts, mm -hmm. show you the options about dealing with those facts. Mm -hmm. Here's option A, option B, option C. Here's the pros and the cons and the risks and the benefits of each of them. Mm -hmm. Now what do you want to do? And <clears throat> what I learned from watching how geriatricians work and palliative care nurses and uh, hospice uh, doctors and others was that they are really incredible communicators who elicit what are your real goals? Because the goal, you know, because people's answer when you say, here are all the options, now what do you want? Mm -hmm. They say, what would you do, doctor? Mm -hmm. And then our answer is supposed to be, no, 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 no. Not for me to answer, this mm -hmm. is for you to answer, only you know you, I don't know you, you gotta do your thing. Mm -hmm. And it always felt like a complete abandonment. And it was suffering to go through those decisions. Mm -hmm. And people didn't have clarity. Mm -hmm. But then I'd watch how these people had conversations who were really good at it. And what they would do is they'd, they'd, they'd spend most of the time not on the facts, on what your goals are. Mm -hmm. And so you'd, you'd learn to ask those questions like, well, what, what really matters to you? And it can be hard to unfold. Like the way I got it to unfold with my father, because in the beginning... It was not a conversation he was that ready to have. And I'd ask questions like, you know, what are your hopes or what are your goals? And he would just kind of steer the question in another way. Mm -hmm. um, but then I told him the story of, uh, that I tell in the book of someone who said in response to those questions, um, well, if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on television, that'd be good enough for me. I'd go through a lot <laughs> to be able to have that. Mm -hmm. But if I can't have that, let me go. Mm. And I said, so what do you think of that? And he said, no way is that good enough for me. Yeah. 
He's like, I want to be, you know, and this was after his uh, surgical practice. He'd had had to give it up. His hand had become paralyzed as the tumor advanced. And he said, you know, what I want and what I love is being at home. He had people over almost every night. He's an incredibly social person. And it was having people around the family dinner table, sharing food, sharing conversation. And if he could have that at least once in a while, that was worth a lot to him. Yes. And then when the therapy, like chemotherapy, took that away, he'd be wiped out so tired, he'd be sleeping 16 hours a day. You know, the whole value of being alive would disappear. And being on that chemotherapy lifelong for what left time he had left is like, no. And if we hadn't had that conversation and yeah. then iteratively had it, he wouldn't have been able to do that. And, the, you know, what we're seeing in the studies is that, um, that this is precisely what happens, that when the clinicians learn to have these conversations, have them earlier. So they, uh, at the Dana-Farber, we randomized the clinical staff and 80% mm-hmm. agreed to participate. And we trained half of them. And the half that got the training and the system of reminders to have these conversations, mm-hmm. 92% had these conversations where it had been less than a third before. They had them at five months before death rather than just a few weeks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then people felt more control having had those que- questions mm-hmm. answered. Half the level of depression, half the level of anxiety, they um, uh, had lower suffering, and they were more likely to choose, make choices with clarity about, Mm -hmm. you know, I want to get to, I want to take my grandkids to Disney. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to take something that's going to take that away from us. I need that as part of what I do. And so part of my hope is that the book moves us to a place, not only the book, but, you know, the conversation that comes out and the way we begin moving and get beyond death panels to say, thinking about what matters as we uh, face finite time mm-hmm. and having clarity is, comes from a series of conversations. It doesn't happen. It's not an epiphany. It's a process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that um, we really came to that. You know, my mother has come to some degree of clarity, but there were two years where she just didn't want to have the conversation. Yep. And I would bring it up at Thanksgiving or whatever. And, you know, she was just like, well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you drop it, you leave the door was open, mm-hmm. but then, you know, the car wreck happened. I'd say, mom, so what, what are you afraid of mm-hmm. if, um, you couldn't drive anymore? And what are your hopes with your health? Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had very different answers than I expected yeah. and it allowed us to figure out a, a way. That's so powerful. Um, I think we should each ask each other one more question and then turn to the audience okay. as our organic timekeeper. <laughs> so I have, you want to? No, I have, please. Um, well, I wanted, give me time to think of my last one. Okay, so I wanted to ask you um, about, about mastery. Um, you know, in, in order to open someone's body and fix it inside, you know, that there is, you, you, you have to master some things. Um, and so too, to write a beautiful book. Um, and so um, I wonder in the, in the wholeness of you, um, uh, why do you need to write? Um, and why do you keep writing? I, um, for me, actually, it was, I, I got to sit on a panel with three doctor writers and we all asked each other, you know, why do you write? And so one was Samuel Shem, who wrote The House of God in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. He said, I write to stick it to the man. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
And then Perry Class, who's here at NYU and is a beautiful writer, she's like, I write about, I write because I need to understand the relationships between mm. colleagues, with patients. Mm. And for me, the writing is much, is neither one of those. It, it, it is my way of thinking through the things that confuse me and I don't feel I have that much control over. Mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it's why do we have, why are our health costs out of control? Or mm -hmm. what is itching? <laughs> um, <laughs> or, uh, you know, I had, I, in these situations, it was really driving out of the sense I had of feeling not very competent with patients and very uncomfortable and distressed about my discomfort in being able to have, uh, to deal with the reality of mortality with my patients. Mm -hmm. And so the writing is my way of taking off my doctor coat and going there. Mm -hmm. And it gives me permission getting to write. It gives me permission to see the coolest things and and uh, ask questions in a way I would never, like I can, um, for the book, I have a colleague, you know, to one floor below me who's run a geriatrics clinic for a decade. I didn't even know what they do down there. Mm -hmm. And if I went down to him and just said, can I hang out with you for a day or two? Mm -hmm. It would just be weird. But mm -hmm. if I go down and I say, I'm writing this thing, uh, can I, you know, interview you and hang out with you for a day? Like, oh yes, please come. Mm -hmm. And and it gives me permission and it opens yeah. up this whole world. And then I write, writing is my way of thinking mm -hmm. and it's thinking through all of the problems mm -hmm. um, that I struggle with and try to articulate them. And then the, the last part is um, it's, for me, it's a way of connecting as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I love music. I still I would give it all up if I could be in a rock band. <laughs> and, um, and what I love is that experience of feeling and connection. And I want the writing not only to make sense up here, I want to feel that we have connected yes. in some way and that it's made you feel something and brought you that connection along the way, whether it's made you nauseated, made you itchy, <laughs> made you, or um, uh, made you feel differently and change, you know, how you talk to your family member about what's mm -hmm. going on with them. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Which brings my question for you, which is your, your form is really poetry. Mm -hmm. Why the form that you chose for this and how is it affecting what you write now? Will you do more nonfiction writing? Um, will you... Um, focus mostly on poetry is it changing your poetry yeah um well i i wrote um i think of it as poet's prose um and i had i had written different kinds of prose before the thing that felt like the biggest change was i didn't think i would write in the first person for a whole book you, you know um i thought maybe that would be something that would happen later on um it i, I like condensed form so all of the chapters are very very condensed very and tiny concise. though though prose yeah. um so i think that you know just that kind of poet's practice of honing and honing and honing and no excess but at the same time um a, a sense of spaciousness we're called for i mean sometimes you're meant to feel compressed but sometimes actually having no excess creates space and manipulating space like that and manipulating sound like that um, uh, and making music um, with words on a page, you know, what, what you do when you make poems and understanding also that a small vessel can hold the universe, which I find tremendously 
amazing and fascinating um, uh, is what I love about condensed and short form. You know, it's what I love about essays as opposed to long, sustained, horrible things like dissertations. Thank goodness I only had to do it once. <laughs> um, so I just believe in, in, in putting it all in um, a, a pristine space, even if it is dealing with, with something that's very roiling and ragged and, and, and to be figured out. So condensation and is what I, what I like in form. What I will write next, um, um, I do not know. Um, I, I don't really have much time. Um, I, 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 don't, I haven't been writing for a long time wow. um, because I have, which is kind of awful, uh, you know, um, but I have a very consuming different kind of job now. So it doesn't leave that kind of space. That academic administrator uh, stuff. Well, actually now I, I've been working at the Ford Foundation. So now oh. I'm a philanthropist. Okay. Um, so I, uh, oh, I, I have to write to you. Yeah, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> not for doctors. <laughs> Come on, public health. <laughs> um, so I, I'm learning a whole new thing, which is actually wow. a wonderful part of life, to say you can do something totally, totally different and you can learn something different. Um, but because I like to do things uh, well, it is quite consuming and it is about other people's songs, yeah. you know, and lifting them up. So, you know, the, the, the work will wait on the other side and what it'll look like I'm not quite sure, but I do like these short-form prose things because they feel like the world is in them and, and life is awfully interesting. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think now is, here is Paul to guide us through our next section. Mm -hmm. I will ask a handful of people to come up and ask a handful of good questions. <laughs> a question for Dr. Gwande. I'm from Kathmandu, uh, and you have a South Asian background. Uh, South Asia has a, a, nearly a fourth of the world's population, and it's going through enormous demographic stress. Uh, the elderly are being left behind in the villages, in the old, not in the old people's homes, because they, they, they don't, we don't have those yet. So what is your prescription for this massive tens of millions of people that are going to come online as the elderly with not even the kind of uh, uh, elderly people's home that have their own problems out here in the West, but you are straddling the globe. Uh, Having prescriptions, I feel, for the West, but what is the prescription for the elderly of South Asia as they age and they go towards dying? And just one quick other question is, it seems a lot of South Asian elderly um, seem to be taking the way of fasting themselves to death. Mm. Uh, have you mulled over that? Uh, when they decide it's time to go, they stop eating. And uh, these are my two questions. When my father came, my dad sort of became more American than, than, than Americans in some sense. Like there was every, he loved everything about coming to the country. He loved the freedom. He loved the dating he got to do. He loved, yeah. you know, um, uh, lots of things. But the one thing that always troubled him was how we treat the elderly. And he felt that, um, uh, that he, uh, when he was a resident, he remembered his surgeon talking to his mother, who was in a nursing home, and he was explaining how he wouldn't be there for his birthday. And he just thought that was the most, the most awful thing he had ever heard, and that we would never in India do this, he said. 
Um, but I devoted a whole chapter in the book to visiting nursing homes now that are cropping up in India. They're growing extremely quickly. And the reasons why is that as the economy is modernized, um, the, the, that family unit I described has broken apart and people are moving to the cities. And so I, I visited the you know, senior retirement communities across that income spectrum, the, um, that very lowest end where I went to um, uh, publicly run and charitable um, nursing homes that are kind of like the poor houses of the 19th century in the United States, these kind of warehouses that have 100, 150, especially women who were abandoned in parks and things like that um, by their family and, uh, and then are, end up in these places. There's other places called pay-to-stay homes where you really don't have, you basically have uh, several elderly people living in one house and, um, and a servant who would serve them, but there's no real training and they had bed sores and they had other things like that. And, and, and again, kind of, you know, paid for and abandoned in some way, but, but not. And, um, and then my own, uh, and then the high income, like, like these weird senior retirement communities with golf courses, like in India that um, are totally on the, this American emulation. Um, and the complexity of um, my own family grappling with my father's from a village, um, and they're grappling with the fact that the young people have gone to the cities and they're, tr and they're getting to live longer because of modern healthcare and going through the same things we're going through. And I think the answer really lies in the idea that, you know, they're doing the same thing we did, which is any problem that occurs, now they bring them to the hospital. And then they, they will actually sell land, sell seed, seed corn, you know, sell, sell your seed crops in order to, uh, you know, there's a World Bank study showing that um, between 40 and 60% of the assets of a family can disappear in the course of a health crisis because you're trying to get the, the hospitals to fix it. Um, and, and the doctors in a cash on the barrel head economy are not you know, are often very happy to um, try to do stuff. So the, the, I think the answer that I'm coming to is really very similar that in fact hospices are growing and recognizing that in a, um, in a more prosperous economy, you want access to the health but then the people in healthcare have to have the options and ways of talking about what are your priorities besides just living longer and make it happen. I never expected it to happen, but the book, you know, got to, I didn't have a number one book before, it got to go num number one here, and it went to number one equally long in India and in China and in Taiwan because they are going through this same crisis. People are living on average to, to their mid-70s to 80s, and they don't have the answers. And I don't think they're fundamentally different. They are about recognizing that this is part of the life cycle. We have to have the caring uh, components of it. And that we, it, we have to make that a kind of shared resource instead of thinking that it's all on, especially the daughters in the family. Um, that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in America, and this is a story in India too, how many children you have, and specifically how many daughters you have, is predictive of your likelihood of being able to not be in one of those nursing home places you don't want to be in. Mm. And, you know, that, that's an indicator of the ways in which we're all needing to kind of modernize our caring economy in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, as you point out, uh, families are more fragmented and separate than ever before.
and then you observe that the better death, a death that is more meaningful, probably involves better communication with the grandparents, the grandchildren, the children, uh, communication about the meaning of life. And well, my question is, let's say there are no grandparents and no grandchildren, and there's no one. It's a, um, a huge issue. Um, you especially have a generation now where the men tend to die a few years before the women. Um, and then with small families or, or no children, um, you will have many people who are isolated and alone. Um, we at least have a long-term care generally policy that, you know, like 60% of, you, you will spend on average about eight years needing of, of uh, dependency, needing help um, in some way or form. We're getting better about making it possible to do that in your home if that's where you want to do it. And then Medicaid is about 60% of people who are in nursing homes and uh, senior communities. And so, in you know, we, we don't do what's happening in many middle and low-income parts of the world, which is, which is people being abandoned the, uh, entirely. The neglect that tends to happen is that um, people want to stay in their homes. They will stay in their homes for the sake of control and freedom past the point of being able to feed themselves, bathe themselves, manage very well. You know, you'll see hundreds of people die in heat waves because uh, it's often the elderly and the frail who are quite vulnerable. And so we're still working our way through the process of recognizing that we need to make services that aren't about nursing homes being the, the you know, that an institutionalized setting is, has to be the way that, that, come, that we all come to have help in the end. Well, and, and I, also, oh, yeah. sorry. No, well, no, please. And, no, I just want to add to that too, yeah. though. I think there's um, another answer um, to add on to that, which um, is, you know, it, I, it, through this book, I realized that a big question I want to answer is what, where is the village, right? And I think chosen family is actually also another way of thinking about, you know, most of us, you know, mom and dad and the kids is not actually how most of us will live most of our lives you know, all in the same place. Even if it's for, you know, your children leave or you're, you're not in a mom and dad family or whatever it is, that's not how we leave. We, losses are inevitable. So I think that, you know, living, uh, thinking of yourselves as living in village, in community, what does it really mean to, you know, have an open table where families build relationships? I've had serious conversations with friends about, you know, what, what would it mean to try to make our own community when we're older and in different configurations. Um, uh, there's, there's a marriage I've said I'm going to join um, because I love them both so much. <laughs> and they've said I'm welcome. Um, but I mean, the point is, I think that, that building village and building community and actually really taking care of each other by voluntary affiliation, um, which is a way of living generously, is another way to add to, to what you're talking about. That's how I'm a, doing it. A, I hear something good for the Ford Foundation to do. <laughs> and B, I, get to, I wrote about something called the Villages Movement, which mm -hmm. is very much like this. And um, one was in my, you know, my rural hometown in Ohio, the Athens Village. And that's where people chip in a couple hundred bucks um, a year. And they're part of a community where um, people are checking one another in the yeah. neighborhood. 
they're making sure that there's a handyman so that, you know, it's not because your door couldn't be fixed that leads you to have to leave the yeah. home. And then you build community um, in the ways that you kind of get in these senior retirement communities, but now it, because you're staying in the neighborhoods, it's much more multi-generational. Yeah. And that sense of connecting the generations, I think, is yeah. so important. I've learned from valuable. my parents, too, that they, they have many friends who are, are of my generation. You know, they, they make friends with younger people. My dad's quite practical. He said, well, you know, <laughs> it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Hi. You've talked a lot about... Um, asking questions from the older generation parents and and about um, maybe your husband uh, and how you've coped with that. What is your advice when you're, co when you're confronted with a child who has a terminal illness um, and when the when you really sometimes can't talk to the child because the parents are the main person that you have to deal with and you're not really sure whether the child's going to be responding about what they want. Um, that's, so how do you cope? Um, what, what advice do you have for when yeah. a child has a long or a terminal illness? The, um, with that. the uh, there was one story and we ended up cutting it because there are a lot of stories of death <laughs> in the book and it, um, and it felt uh, like it was just tipping the balance too much. But um, I had a cousin named Callie, uh, actually really my wife's cousin uh, named Callie, who um, was up in New Hampshire and at the age of 12 she developed Hodg Hodgkin's lymphoma. And I wrote about her in um, my book Better. And, and I got it wrong there. Um, the story was about how the, uh, her father and mother called and said, what should we do? They, uh, she had been, she had treated the Hodgkin's lymphoma and there's an 80% cure rate for Hodgkin's lymphoma. It's a really generally great outcome, but hers came back. She was in the 20%. And then when it came back, the treatment that was available didn't work. And so now she'd been in the hospital for what had ended up becoming three months in the hospital um, with some things working for a little bit, then not working, and then she had tumors all over her body. She ended up having to have chest tubes on both sides. She was in pain. She was suffering. And they come to her and said, well, do you want a bone marrow transplant? We can try an experimental therapy. Or do you want to take her home on hospice? And, um, and asked me what to do. What would I advise doing? And I didn't know how to answer the question. I told them all the statistics about what the odds are each way. And it was only later that I realized that you really can ask the same questions of a child and the family um, that you would ask it to the adult, which would be, what are your priorities? What, what are your fears and what are your hopes? And she, can answer, she could have answered that. Mm -hmm. What is she willing to go through and not willing to throw through? What's really important to her? Um, and they had to figure it out on their own. And they figured out that for her, she was in pain every day. What she constantly asked for was, uh, could she see her friends? And so they decided, um, and, the, and that she would not get to have that uh, under the circumstances of trying the experimental thing. And the, um, I remember it was an Easter Sunday, and they said um, uh, that, you know, the, they sent a note to all the family that the week before they'd brought her home uh, she'd gotten to see her friends and be with her friends. And then on the Monday after Easter Sunday that she had uh, died and that they were at peace 
with that decision. Um, I think the hardest thing is when, uh, well, it's always hard. Um, even harder is when the child is so young they can't speak for themselves. And then it's really saying it's okay to the parents to say what is in the what do you see is in the interest of your child, in the interest of you as a family, and in the interest of your children. I connected with um, a, uh, a friend after I'd written the book where he wanted to talk about this, where you know the focus was so much on their child who'd been diagnosed at uh, a few months of age with a advancing disease, died ultimately at three years, that um, the process of just putting that child first nearly wrecked the marriage and nearly wrecked the, um, the older child's life. And that what he needed to hear was that it was okay to say what is, in, and ultimately he felt very alone when he made the choice that we're going to do what's best for the whole family. Okay. And that that had to be said to be okay. okay. Um, and it felt like something that was missing along the way. Thank you so much for your contributions. It's been wonderful. My question is this. Have you heard of the doula givers end of life doula movement? And if so, what do you think of it? Have you ever heard of this? No, I just know of, about doulas who I kind of revere. So just like, yeah. Yeah, so just yeah. like the birthing that for concept that transition. of so they, a non-medical yeah. professional coming in to guide that journey into the world, they now have for the other end of life, for end of life, end of life doulas. And it's pretty amazing. Well, yeah, I wonder and they're, also, well, just as, you know, because yeah. one of the things that, that you write about that I think is related, and, and I'm obsessed with hospice nurses, yeah. um, because I think, like, who, it's a certain kind of person who can do that. You know who can who understands what what happens and can you know shepherd if you will. So that's interesting. Yeah, there's definitely and part of the interesting idea of the doula is that they're not the nurse and not the social worker and not mm -hmm. the, but that they're kind of your companion along the way. They're hired by you to be there with them, and they really have taken those skills of being there for someone at the beginning of life and transferred it to th that other. Um, part of life, and um, and I think it's still being figured out. Like what it what is. what's the there role, and is. how mm -hmm. is it not just like you know being the uh, the home health aide to clean up after X Y Z? Like where do we draw the lines? But it's a really interesting movement, recognizing the fact yeah. that um, it can be in people's control. Yeah, and I think it's it's I'm a hospice nurse by trade, and mm -hmm. so I see the limitations in the mainstream medical. How much time I can spend and people want to be in the home environment and how important those hours are to help that family, especially with the overwhelming fear right now we have of death. We're not preparing for it. We're not talking about it. To put families in the midst of that crisis in a home environment is really intense without having proper guidance um, the whole time there. So it is a movement and it's worldwide. You know, we have this need around. So it's interesting to see where this will go. Thank and you. there will be a volunteer section too for people to learn to take care of one another. So, so thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you. I, I, I certainly think that the two of you met tonight. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. And um, I'm really grateful for you meeting here and for us overhearing your conversation. So, Atul Gawande, Elizabeth Alexander, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, thanks again for listening to that conversation between Atul Gawande, whose most recent book is Being Mortal, and Elizabeth Alexander, whose book is The Light of the World. They're both available on the library shelves and on our e-reader app, Simply E. As always, thanks for listening to the show. If you're enjoying it, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.